Human beings love stories, and no collection of stories is more beloved worldwide than the Middle Eastern folktales known as 1001 Nights. They are incredibly influential around the world, uh, from the Middle East to Brazil to China to Africa to the United States. Modern editions of 1001 Nights, sometimes also called Arabian Nights, contain anywhere from a few hundred stories to 1001 stories or more. And in part, thanks to a certain 1992 Disney animated film featuring Robin Williams, the most famous story in this collection is Aladdin and the Magic Lamp. Well, in reality, these stories are, you know, the Thousand One Nights is a grab bag of, of many different kinds of stories. Historical chronicles, you know, um, stories featuring conflict between Christians and Muslims, uh, very domestic stories of men who fe fear being betrayed by women, uh, men telling stories against women, women telling stories against men, sometimes nicely wrapped in, in framing stories that pit them up against each other to to prove the guilt of the other and they're really very different kinds of stories and they're not they're not all fantastical and they're not all marvelous in the way that we we uh in the west often associate the canon of the thousand one nights with my name is paulo lemosorta i'm a professor of literature and creative writing at nyu abu dhabi the original collection only contained about 40 stories it was compiled into a manuscript sometime between the 8th century and the 14th century during the Islamic Golden Age. The stories were made popular in the West by the French translator Antoine Galland, who got a hold of this original manuscript in the 1690s. Galland began translating and publishing these stories in French. They were an instant hit. But some of the most popular stories, such as Aladdin and Alibaba, didn't appear in that original manuscript. I fought from when I was a kid. Uh, these were the first stories my, my mom had told me. Uh, my family had lived in the Middle East before I was born. I imagine these were authentic stories, as, as real as the uh, Persian carpets that I grew up with. And um, was quite shocked to discover that the first inclusion of these stories, uh, these most famous stories of the Arabian Nights, um, happened in the early 1700s. Antoine Galan, the first French translator of the Arabian Nights has been for three centuries um, credited as being the author of the Arabian Nights as we know them, the creator, the inventor of the Thousand One Nights, in particular because his edition was the first to include Aladdin and Alibaba and these most famous stories. Not only were these two stories not in the original Arabic manuscript, they weren't in any Arabic manuscript. For about 300 years, it seemed like they came from Galand himself. But I went to Abu Dhabi because I, I thought this, this could not be the case. It couldn't be the case that these stories, um, like Aladdin and Alibaba, didn't have an authentic Arabic manuscript, that they only were added in French. This seemed to me, um, it was too disappointing. My childhood would have been a lie. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Paolo Lemos Orta to discuss 1001 Nights. Today, there are many editions of 1001 Nights, each containing a different number of stories. But typically, they all begin with the same frame story, the story of Scheherazade. The tale begins with a woman named Scheherazade and her king, Shariar. 
uh, her misogynist, uh, paranoid, uh, jealous king who had been betrayed by his previous wife had made this resolution to marry a new young virgin every night and have her killed in the morning so he could never be betrayed again. So Shahrazad volunteers. She's a vizier's daughter and she volunteers to marry Shariar. And of course, uh, her father, the vizier, doesn't want that to happen. But she has a plan and her plan is to tell a story, but not to finish it, not to allow the story to come to an end. In fact, she must pause the story in some moment of suspense, inventing the cliffhanger uh, many, many centuries ago. Scheherazade's life hangs on her stories. If she finishes the story, King Shariar will no longer have any use for her and will kill her the next morning. So as long as she keeps the king entertained, her life is safe. Cleverly, Scheherazade brought her sister along to the king's palace to help her keep the stories going. So uh, her sister, who has joined her in, in, in the marital bedroom, could ask, oh, Sherazad, tell us one of these, one, continue your story from last night or tell a new story. Um, so she could live another, another night, basically. One of the main reasons these stories became famous in the West is because of the French translator Antoine Galland. Antoine Galland was born in 1646 in northern France. He attended school in Noyon, where he studied Greek and Latin. His facility with classical languages landed him a job with the French embassy on an archaeological expedition in Istanbul. Why Istanbul? Because it was once Constantinople, a Greek city, and Galan's job included copying inscriptions, sketching historical monuments, and collecting coins. He had this amazing, mind-blowing experience when he was in Istanbul. He wasn't supposed to be collecting works of Arabic literature or Turkish or Persian. Uh, he was supposed to be uh, just digging up Greek and Roman classical stuff, but he couldn't help himself. And contrary to the instructions that he had, Antoine Galland fell in love with, um, with books in Arabic, Persian, and Turkish and started collecting them. He happens upon a manuscript of what we now know as Sinbad, and he asks contacts he has in the Levant for more, and that's when he gets the manuscript of the Arabian Nights. Galland took these manuscripts back with him to France. He translated and published the story of Sinbad the Sailor in 1701. It was a huge hit, and Galan decided to continue with the other tales. He published the first batch of stories of 1001 Nights in 1704. It was the perfect moment for a book like this in France. Mother Goose and the great French fairy tale fad and craze had just started, in, I mean, 10 years before, in 1697. So there was an appetite for certain kinds of story, and he was able to spin the stories of the Thousand and One Nights, um, which we in the West now know as the Arabian Nights, he was able to spin them as kind of oriental fairy tales or oriental tales or fables. So Galand uh, edited out a lot of the more mature content, the sex, the orgies, the very first frame, frame tale begins with an orgy. And, and he, he, he basically adapted these stories from Arabic in his manuscript kind of made them fit a little bit, the tastes and the conventions of his own time. The Arabic manuscript that Galan was translating wasn't the version we know today. It only contained about 40 stories and was missing two very important tales. The Arabic manuscript does not have Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp or Ali Baba and the 40 Thieves. According to Galand, these stories came from somewhere else, from a man he wrote about in his private diary. He records that a Syrian named Hannah would have come to him and they would have met a series of times in 1709 
in spring summer of 1709 and told him these stories. This man was named Hanna Diab. Galand wrote that Diab told him the stories of Aladdin and Alibaba, and he published them along with the stories he translated from the original Arabic manuscript. So in his diary, he credits Diab, but not in the published book. When Galan published the stories, he makes no such acknowledgement, right? So these stories are passed off as sort of genuine Arabian night stories or thousand and one night stories, if you will. So Galan says one thing in his diary and something else in his published manuscript. Readers didn't know which version to believe. So in what we knew was simply that these stories appeared in French. And yeah, there were this traces in his private diary after he died, people discovered the diary. But, you know, that could have been anything. But in 1993, a key piece to the puzzle was discovered. It just so happened that now, within this last generation, um, a manuscript um, came up, was discovered, um, more, more accurately rediscovered, uh, of all places, in the Vatican Library. Uh, it turns out that this is, this is the book of travels. This is the memoir of the storyteller who indeed did come from Aleppo to Paris and was in Paris in spring-summer of 1709. This was Diab's personal diary, and it confirmed Galan's private account. So for 300 years, all we had was the published translation making no acknowledgement of Hannah Diab, no acknowledgement of the storyteller from Aleppo, just, just presenting Alibaba and Aladdin and these famous stories in French, no Arabic original. And now, in addition to Galan's diary, where he did acknowledge some kind of storyteller named Hana from Aleppo. We have Hana's own version of the story. So that's a wonderful, I mean, this is, this is really what I've written about. But more importantly, this is, this is a, it just, it's just so exciting to see the same, uh, the, the, the same story of storytelling from both the French and the, and the Arab uh, perspective. And that's, that's what we have now with, uh, with the storyteller of Alibaba and Aladdin. So um, Hana Diop, what do we know about him? So we knew very little, but now we know a lot because we, <laughs> we have his book. Unfortunately, it is missing the first five folios. So we don't know exactly if his father is dead or he's just missing, but a little bit like Aladdin, he, you know, he's missing his father, right? There's uh, Aladdin's father dies. Um, uh, a little bit like Aladdin, Hana Diab is expected to apprentice in a family trade. Uh, he had four or five older brothers. And they were all apprenticing with French merchants in Aleppo. Aleppo, an incredibly important crossroads of trade between East and West, right? Asia and Europe at the time. And, and hence, a, a place where stories connected and stories traveled from, from East to West and, and back again. These French merchants helped facilitate trade between Asia, the Middle East, and Europe. They were in the business of buying and selling goods like silks, spices, oils, tea, ivory, and cotton. As a young man, Diab worked for the French merchants in Syria and learned to speak French and Italian. Diab's linguistic skills caught the attention of a mysterious Frenchman. So this man, this mysterious man named Paul Lucas, he takes one, basically one look at, at, at Hannah Diab and says, be my guide, come with me, I'm in need of a guide. I used to have one who could translate for me, but I, Paul Lucas, I don't speak Arabic, I, I need an interpreter. And he says, I'll take you all the way to Paris. I'll give you a great job. You'll be the, the Arabic librarian for, for, the, for the king in Versailles. And uh, so Hannah has to make up his mind and, uh, and decides, perhaps against his misgivings, to, to join him in, on, this, 
adventurer across the Mediterranean. And um, Lucas smuggles a mummy out of Egypt very illegally and all sorts of you know uh, weird and, and fantastical uh, things uh, happen, at least in, in Hannah's mind. So I think there's something very genuine about the, the kind of miracle and magic of the stories that he related. There is no evidence that Diab was ever a professional storyteller, but he came from a land of stories. We know that there were uh, over 60 cafes in Aleppo, many of them um, storytelling cafes. The way you could get uh, customers to come in was to, to hire storytellers. And the storyteller, you know, damn well better not finish a story. The storyteller should know, be smart enough to interrupt it at the moment of greatest suspense and then just make a beeline for the exit. And, we, and customers would, would, would try and tackle him and force him to finish a story because what they didn't want to do was have to come back the next day and pay for another cup of coffee and listen to the rest of the story. And we know from the traveler's reports uh, from this period, you did not have to be a professional storyteller to have the stories in your head. Even those who couldn't read, um, there are docu documented instances that they had many stories in their heads and, and that they could go on at great length these intricate stories, these intricate embedded stories with framing narratives and story within story within story. So uh, Aleppo was a city of stories, and they came from east and west. And of course, merchants came from east and west. So the world of Aladdin, whether, whether or not it's actually based on Honey Ab's own life, or if it's just a, you know, it certainly comes out of the fabric of his, of his life, of his city, of the, of the mercantile values that matter to him. And Aladdin's fantasies are his are, are overlap with his own, or there are his own, if you, if you will. It seems like the, that mercantile culture shapes a lot of the the flavor of some of the the way that Hannah, in particular, told his stories. For sure, and in fact, the original uh, Arabic stories in the manuscript that Galan would get, uh, the most recurrent protagonist is a merchant. The typical story is. You're a merchant, your dad uh, was fairly successful, you inherited a lot from him. And then of course, what do you do? You're young, you, you wanna have friends, you wanna be surrounded by you know, attractive people, so you squander your, all your inheritance. You're left with nothing and you have to, you know. So that, that, you know, the prolific son of the successful you know, merchant who squanders everything and has to do it, has to make the, the money again. That's like the plot. For the for the stories and the original cycle of tales uh, in the, in the thousand one nights, and curiously, we tend to view the world in a very anachronistic way and imagine that Europe had some kind of position of supremacy vis-à-vis um, -vis the Levant, right, in seventeen hundred. But we have to kind of rewind. This was like a hundred years before Napoleon invaded Egypt, before the sort of colonial enterprise, and it was. The East that was associated in Versailles with luxury, with sophistication, and with luxury goods. There's even one historian that claims that the, that the court of Versailles bankrupt itself in its need and its desire for these Eastern goods, right? So it's interesting that the kinds of letters of commission that Paul Lucas had on him from the court were not just uh, official uh, commissions from you know the botanist at court or or uh, a scientist or but you know the you know adolescent princesses of Versailles his his patroness was this teenage 
girl, the Duchess of Burgundy, who wanted him to bring these, you know, the massive diamonds and, and rubies and things like that, right? And these jewels back from from uh, from the uh, quote unquote Orient. So so yeah, I mean, commerce is is key, and really, it's what defined the relationship between Paris and Constantinople, right? Now Istanbul, in those days before. Napoleon, before his invasion of Egypt, right? Before the French Revolution. Part of the reason these stories were so popular in Europe was because they were new and exciting. And thematically, they were quite different from the fairy tales European audiences were used to. A lot of fairy tales were, you know, tales of blue, blue bloods somehow, you know, who lost their fortune, but they, you know, their virtue shows through, their royal blood shows through, right? These kinds of stories. A lot of the romances and, and courtly love tradition in the West dealt with aristocratic characters and landowners and feudal lords and all that. And there's something about these stories of the Arabian Nights, both in the original cycle of stories that the French translator had in his manuscript and the stories told by Hana Diab, the guide, the servant. These stories are often deal with, with middle class, <laughs> right? And there's something about making them the protagonist. And, and, and it's them. It's not, oh, I, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I'm a rich aristocrat who fell on hard times, right? No, but it, the actual protagonist of these stories, these are stories of social ascension. It, it's almost uncanny to the point that a lot of researchers for a long time, until very recently, assumed, oh, this, this has to be the French given the social upheaval of the 1700s that would lead to the French Revolution, these fantasies of, of social ascent, right? Like the story of Aladdin, uh, poor Taylor's son goes from nothing to become a prince. This has to be just the French projecting their own social anxieties. And, and what's fascinating is that the original stories, both in Arabic and the ones which were told by Hanan Diab in the early 1700s, are already stories of social ascent. And they already have characters um, who are dealing with the, the fluidity uh, of social relations in, in, in important mercantile cities. And that's something which is lovely about uh, tales, of course, of commerce, because there's always that possibility of making it big, right? There's always the sense of the, and these some of the stories in, in the original Arabic core go back a millennia. And they were already these stories that, that were these entrancing stories of the possibility of social ascension, right? Sinbad is, a good, is actually a good example. The story that exists in Arabic may or may not have been part of the Thousand One Nights. French translator made sure that it became part of the Thousand One Nights. But it, 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 it's, it's something that, that appeals to people in cities that do business, right? The deal. <laughs> the, even the con, some of the protagonists are these wonderful con, con artists. One of them is uh, Delilah, who's this con woman who's just amazing. It's one of my favorite characters in the Arabian Nights. Um, but there is something very uh, urban and mercantile and commercial about these stories. And that, that really was a revolution um, for storytellers and uh, readers and editors and publishers in Paris in the 1700s. Right, not just sort of sophisticated poetry for the court, for the people who have the education to understand the rhyme schemes and appreciate the, your variations and your improvisations upon them, right? But entertaining stories that the average person could listen to. And we have an incredible 
documentation of how if Hannah was a servant, some of the stories he told, Aladdin in particular, were memorized by illiterate servants in, in the, the 1700s. And then they would tell the story. And then 60 years later, there'd be the, all these sort of homegrown variants of the Aladdin story that had been planted by this illiterate servant who had memorized the story. Rabbi Shed loved it. Um, when some of, the people, some of these people could read, some of them couldn't read. But they love the stories of the Arabian Nights. So we know that those stories were not just beloved at court by the patronesses of the literary salon who may have dealt directly with a French translator, but they really traveled very quickly throughout European society. And I'm not, I'm not sure that could have happened if these had been stories just of aristocrats. What do we know about the origins of the older Arabic tales? Like, how did they eventually get into that Arabic manuscript that... Um... That Galan did have access to. We know that in all likelihood a Persian story collection and perhaps even its sibling story collections were, in, were imported from, from Persia into the Arab world. And as early as the ninth century, common era, and our oldest manuscripts, including the one that Galan had at his disposal, which coincidentally is the oldest one that we at least can prove in, in public uh, holdings. It's at the, at the Bibliothèque Nationale, the National Library in, in Paris. So we're talking about stories that existed in some written form as early as the ninth century uh, in Arabic and written down in the, in, in the manuscripts that we have you know, through the 13th and 14th century. Let's now move to its afterlife in the West and then and then beyond. So it comes out in France, and you've mentioned it was a kind of, you know, just mania for these stories. Shahrazad is perhaps the most powerful literary storyteller, right, and of any gender, and, and very famous and reclaimed over and over again by women and feminist uh, writers throughout history, right? Um, so I find it fascinating that there was a widow, a publishing widow, had a hand in publishing the Arabian Nights. I find that fascinating. Um, so Paris was a place where women could exert literary power as tastemakers. They did in the publishing area, and they also did in the literary salon. And we know from the, the French translator's correspondence that he spent a fair amount of his time enticing them and sweetening the deal and, and sort of um, circulating the stories that would appear in the next volume in manuscript form among these patronesses of these literary salons, right? These powerful women in the, in the aristocratic court before the revolution. So it's fascinating that he knew he had to get the sort of influencers of the day <laughs> on board, right? And they made it a sensation in the court um, even when it was just in you know manuscript form, and the fact that that it made it into print, and really allowed that interest to transcend the court. And as I mentioned, we have these documented cases of people who could read and who couldn't read, who love these stories so much they would memorize them and take them into small towns. And then when we have these little fascinating German, French, and other European variants of these stories, uh, which arrive for the oral storytelling of Hannah Diab. 
Um, and it's fitting that they would continue to be told. <laughs> but what's what I find amazing is that is how quickly they entered the the mainstream, and they just sort of slipped into the culture. Um, by the late 1700s, you know, by the 1760s, these stories were published often separately, a little little Aladdin chapbook or a little Alibaba chapbook, and sometimes they were set in France or they or, or they were set in London, and so there's there was, there was something about these stories about these stories of social ascent of ordinary guys in extraordinary circumstances, right, coming into contact with a magic mountain or that wonderful lamp, uh, the, the enslaved woman who rises. Uh, th these stories just caught on and they went, they made it onto stage very quickly and they made it into collections of fairy tales. And often they were not associated with the Arabian Nights and it was just like, you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk and Aladdin, right? So they just made it so quickly so it's really difficult to find a parallel i guess with this degree of market <laughs> penetration if you will really there's no other story collection as widely disseminated perhaps uh, other than, than the bible that other collection of uh, <laughs> middle eastern uh, tales i mean it seems to me that alibaba and and aladdin were more successfully spread around the world than any of their European counterparts that, you know, they conquered the world through the quality of the story. Do you think that that's true? Yeah. And I wonder sometimes if the fact that it was an Arab storyteller and a Frenchman writing the stories down and kind of, you know, they were both contributing elements of it. So the Frenchman was certainly trying to render it in his style, but the stories and the characters and the, and the sort of interior monologue and the motivations came from the Arab. Uh, Maybe there's something about this syncretism, which made the stories a bit more malleable, and 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 the settings which later might seem exotic, but it, they may have helped these stories travel, because a lot of people from you know Brazil to China associate the Middle East with trade and commerce, right? If we think about all the Lebanese and Syrians who went to Brazil in the 19th century and. And, and in the 20th century, or, or I mean, a lot of these places associate, you know, that, that's their connection to the Middle East. It's trade. These stories have traveled, Alibaba and Aladdin have traveled so widely. And, it, and it's just a, a misunderstanding. We're so myopic in the West. We imagine, oh, Disney is so powerful. Well, a lot of my students first learned of Aladdin through a Bangladeshi cartoon or from other, you know, it's... As much as we imagine Disney is all powerful and market share, uh, other countries have their own traditions. What's amazing is that the Arabian Nights tends to be represented, be it the Turkish soap opera, the Brazilian soap opera, the Mexican soap opera, right? Which have all dealt with Arabian Nights and Shahrazad and modernized. Um, you know, people are attached to the versions of these stories that they've encountered in their cultural uh, contexts, be it in, in Amharic or in Mandarin. Um, and really, we also have to remember, Disney didn't invent the IP. They made a film based on Aladdin it because it had been, like Sleeping Beauty, one of the two or three most frequently performed stories on the English stage for over two centuries. 
So it's not it's not that Walt Disney took something that was not popular and made it popular. No, 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 no. They they made a movie on an incredibly widely circulated story, thinking, well, you know, uh, maybe people are more likely to watch it because this is such a popular story. And I, and I, I you know, sometimes I, I just, you know, I get sad when people imagine that Disney invented this story. It's such a Eurocentric way of thinking about how stories, you know, travel. So I, I think that's really what's fascinating about these stories. It's like going into the history of Alibaba, right? How many Bollywood versions over how many generations? You know, and there's there are these English film versions that Chin Chin Chao was based on the music hall uh, version of Alibaba, which is incredibly popular. And before that, there were French operas based on, on Alibaba. It's been made into musicals so often. And this is, has not been, um, I should say, restricted to the Western world. Musicals that were based on um, on stories from the Arabian Nights in Beirut and, you know, and, and, and what we now call Lebanon as well, right? In the 19th century. So they were making Arabian Nights stories into musicals in the 19th century. Disney does it in 1992 and it's like, ooh, Disney had first had that idea. Well, that tells us more about our ignorance than, than, uh, than about the Arabian Nights. How did A Thousand and One Nights change the world? I guess it's with these tales of of um, of um, you know enslaved women and ordinary guys who set against these extraordinary circumstances, um, and I and I would put as much weight on the ordinariness, lowly social status of many of these, uh, or common social status of many of these characters, as I would on the kind of fantastical adventures that they. They go on. I really think it's that relatability that is so key to 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 their their cons consistent appeal. There's something about that mix, French and Syrian at once, that perhaps allow these these stories to travel so widely and so successfully. Whereas I think I'm not sure a purely national uh, story could have quite become as global. Yeah. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pomerant and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Dew. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>